Perfection is just a story. You decide what perfection is. You decide how you step wholeheartedly into the life that you have. Not the life that could be, or not the life that was, but the life that is. And that should be, for most people, perfection. Today, we sit down with Victor Pineda, one of the most inspiring human beings I have had the pleasure of meeting. Victor has lived with a disability all of his life and he has spent most of it campaigning for a better world for all disabled people. He has a PhD from UCLA, is leading a foundation in his name and he is a consultant for large organizations and governments. What makes Victor special is that when you immerse into discussion with him, you lose track of time and you feel really hurt. At this level of perfect connection, it becomes clear that how we look, where we come from, or whatever disabilities we might have is really secondary. All that is left is mutual respect and curiosity for a better world. My name is Risto Kulasma and I'm your host at Talks of Imperfection, where we meet nearly perfect people revealing their imperfections. Our intention is to create an encounter where we learn and get inspired about what kind of role imperfection plays in our private and professional lives. Welcome to the show. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here. Thanks. This topic is something that I've thought a lot about. Um, perfection. Perfection, a perfect moment. A perfect moment is a moment where you feel bliss, where time and space melts away, and where you understand that the true nature of your reality is far more beautiful and far more magical and absurd than you could ever imagine. So a perfect moment for me recently was uh, was a kiss and then a set of openings that happened. Uh, the heart starts to fly. The, the person in front of you is reflecting the most beautiful parts of yourself back to you. And uh, this is magic. And you realize that this love story isn't only your love story, but there's a much bigger love story of all of humanity, of all of consciousness. And this happened very unexpectedly. Just a few months months ago, and I said, "Oh my God! It took me an entire lifetime to remember this universal feeling of love." And uh, I think that is a perfect moment. Wow! Welcome to the talks of imperfection. Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> Good to have you, man. Um, we connected recently, and that was pretty cool moment because. I saw, of course, I have heard about you and your, what all the wonderful things you do, but it was such a humane, beautiful, immediate connection. And when I see you in flesh, 
and I everything went through my mind like all the things you are involved one thing popped in like where you get your energy what is the source of your drive well they you know they call me the energizer bunny because <laughs> I just keep going and going but the drive comes from a deep understanding that I have a unique story to tell the drive comes from an understanding that I was born into a world that wasn't designed for me the drive comes from the understanding that most people that look at me will immediately make decisions and choices and judgments about what I can't do instead of what I can do. Um, they view the disability, not the person. And I think that it's a child being born into a world that was, you know, 20 times heavier for me than it is for most people. I had to learn how to generate tremendous internal strength. And so for the audience that isn't able to see me, I'm sitting in front of you here in Amsterdam where we're gathering. I'm in a very fancy electric wheelchair and I'm using a machine to help me breathe. So every time I take a breath, I have a little bit of extra support to take a deeper breath. And all of this is because of the perfect imperfection in the 98th letter of my 10th chromosome where a slight mutation happened so that I would produce a wrong kind of protein or a different kind of protein. And that protein affected the way my muscles grew. But it also affected the way that I see the world. It affected the way that I understand my role. And it affected the way that I realized that I wasn't broken. That I didn't have to be fixed. But perhaps I had a role to fix society and the people. And the injustices that I saw around me. And what is your approach to perfection and imperfection? What is your definition? Well, I like to I like to say that everybody and every thing in life is perfectly imperfect. Um, it's not my idea. I'm sure many other people have talked about that. But there is a moment of peace when you stop chasing perfection or you reassign the meaning of perfection to encompass imperfection. So the totality of perfection contains within itself the good, the bad, the ugly, you know. Part of life is all the emotions. It's not about living just a happy life. It's about living a complete life and I've had you know the fortune to experience many aspects of that completion and you've done so much that it would take the whole podcast to go through <laughs> all of that but let let me let you pick the the one of the defining moments or project what, what are you most proud of so far because you know 
you you have uh, amazing history ahead of you. But what what has been the pivotal most most um, meaningful moments on your career so far? Well, this is a story that um, not a lot of people know about. But as a student uh, at University of California Berkeley, there's a there's a legacy of social activism and social change and innovation. And uh, part of my innovation was I had taken my financial aid money and used it to fly to New York and sneak into the United Nations. <laughs> and so I stuck in the United Nations uh, as a 22-year-old and started negotiating an international human rights treaty to protect the rights of persons with disabilities. One, one billion people in the world, or 1.2, um, live with a disability, and that means that one of every seven people in any city or any place or country experiences the world from this perspective. Hmm. Now, these disabilities um, could be visible or invisible, you don't have to see somebody in a wheelchair or see somebody that might, you know, live with dyslexia or chronic illness or HIV AIDS or mental mental health challenges uh, to understand that it's one of the most like unifying experiences of the human condition. But yet, you know, as a young adult, I realized that there was a role to play there was a, a a stage or a leadership opportunity to to tackle and i ended up uh we ended up you know launching that treaty into force in 2007 and since then I've worked with national governments to implement those promises so part of that journey is working on the master plan in dubai the, the disability strategy of the Emirate of Dubai with the Executive Council there and the later with the team on uh, the Abu Dhabi Disability Strategy. The work in Dubai became federal law hmm. in the United Arab Emirates. In the U.S., for example, a lot of that work was recognized by President Barack Obama. So I was asked to serve on U.S. regulatory agencies that uh, enforce and develop these sort of policies that identify an eliminate barriers. So ultimately, it's the journey has been a journey about equity, access, innovation, and inclusion. And a big part of it has been looking at creating the right framework. So we helped continue to connect the dots with the sustainable development goals and negotiated the work, some of the work around SDG 11, 11 on inclusive and safe and resilient cities, um, and then also negotiated um, something called the New Urban Agenda, which was which happens every 20 years, where governments decide the the future of uh, of the human habitat. And that's a good segue to the future of cities. Walk us through, when you look at the city and the imperfections of the city from your perspective, what do you see? I see a lot of people frustrated. 
um, their talents and their potential ignored. And the connections, the human connections that could create more vibrancy, more beauty. That's so interesting because I was first thinking like, okay, you will you will give a nice insight about um, inaccessibility, but you take it from immediately from the um, kind of mental side of things. The fabric and the emotion. But, but I say that because that helps us understand what it's like to have inaccessible hmm. environments. 25% of people uh, that live in cities um, experience barriers in the way that they move around because of age or disability. And if you think about the transaction, there are tremendous transaction costs of just moving around. If you have difficulty walking or if you have difficulty seeing or if you have difficulty hearing, there's other, there's other, you know, obstacles um, along the way. And those obstacles limit our productivity. They limit our production possibility frontier. The GDP of the city is limited when it can't access and uh, deploy all of that human resource. But under that human resource, under that productivity, are people who either feel like they belong to that city or they feel like they don't belong to that city, like they're excluded. So, so the idea of inclusion and exclusion the idea of belonging are all fundamental to the vibrancy of a city. And if one out of every seven people that might live with a disability or, or people that are aging or people that, you know, have families cannot afford or don't feel like they belong, I think everybody loses. Hmm. And given your work with UN cities, governments, what have been the kind of wins for you? What has changed? What has been the impact? Well, I think the biggest impact is launching the, uh, with the help of the UN, we launched the Global Compact on Inclusive and Accessible Cities. And the goal of that initiative is to incentivize and transform 100 cities to be more inclusive, accessible, and resilient by 2030. So we launched it with the help of the German government in Berlin. In 2018, we're developing training programs for cities. Um, we're developing online courses, toolkits, and a community of practice. And during the pandemic in March of 2020, we immediately brought all of our city partners together and we developed um, uh, 600 people joined different regional WhatsApp groups. Hmm. And these WhatsApp groups had everybody from the advisor to the president of Colombia to some grassroots activist, you know, in Uganda that's working on protecting the rights of, of, of indigenous women and women with disabilities disabilities and what we found during the pandemic is that people want to quickly understand how they can work together how they can collaborate and we saw in one of the whatsapp groups uh, in the u.s that there was a public policy uh, decree from the mayor of san francisco that offered reduced taxis reduced price 
taxi services for people that wouldn't feel safe using public transportation during the pandemic. And immediately, the you know, some of the people in New York that were working in the New York's mayor's office and some of the commissioners that were in that group group were able to use that policy a few hours later and develop a similar policy in a different place. So that was fast. Yeah, very fast. <laughs> so I think this is the idea is people want ways of, of, of leveraging good ideas quickly. Hmm. In many meters, we could say you are successful, but what success means to you? Deepak, Deepak Chopra was asked that question at one of our events. You organized uh, in Davos, and he answered it in this way. And I like I like the way he answered it. He said, "It's the attainment of worthy goals." And I think that success is understanding that your goals have to have meaning or have to have purpose. Mm. And if you can achieve that sense of meaning, that sense of purpose, then that's success. Especially if there's if the goals that you set out to tackle or not just about buying a Tesla, but about feeling like you're part of something special and unique. Hmm. What are you fighting for? I think I like to leverage innovation to drive inclusion. I like to look at uh, systems that are perhaps dysfunctional and find ways of bridging those gaps. Uh, I think too many people fall through the gaps. I had fallen through the gaps. I was denied an education in Venezuela as a child because I couldn't walk. And it wasn't that there was something that was limited in me. It was the limited imaginations of the teachers and the principals that mm. couldn't imagine what I could accomplish. So the idea is, you know, before we retrofit buildings and before we retrofit the world, we have to retrofit our minds. And so the question that I ask myself is, you know, what can I accomplish with the time that I have left? Um, how do I achieve sort of the sense of contentment, bliss, or how do I achieve an elevated sense of my understanding? And how can I turn a vulnerability into a strength? How do I transform a vulnerability into a strength? And I think actively trying to answer those questions has allowed me to look at things that I'm afraid of and instead of running away from them, try to play with them, understand them, um, incorporate them into the things that I do. So I could be, for example, a little bit afraid of saying the wrong thing, or I could be a little bit afraid of trying to express a feeling that I don't know if it's going to be received correctly. Hmm. The power in you, when we met, I just started to talk to uh, you know, a new friend immediately. And only later... Because I had to also um, interact with your assistants, and I, I kind of like, oh wow, uh, did I do something wrong? Like, is there a uh, what would be your advice for for people? How should they interact 
and address someone in a wheelchair. I just want to hear sure. this because it's not only a wheelchair, but I have a this machine on my face. <laughs> I use a ventilator. You know, my body is very small. I think the way we approach anything that we're unsure about um, is with a sense of openness and a little bit of a little bit of uh, humility. So, you know, how can I? Is there anything you need? How can I? Can I help you with anything, or like, you know, is is there a preferred pronoun or a preferred word, or like, I'm not I'm not used to interacting with people that use a wheelchair, um, you know, to help me understand. So you see this with the Black Lives Matter movement. You see this with a lot of other movements, which is if you want to be an ally, you start by just claiming a little bit of ignorance. And understanding that you can learn and, and, and be part of this community as well. I mean, the thing with the disability community is anybody can join us at any time. Like, we don't discriminate. <laughs> so, you know, the it's harder to become a different race uh, than it is to join the disability community. So it's, it is a community. We have a culture. We have a history. We have a, a sense of understanding our common, you know, set of injustices, but also a lot of diversity, right? Mm. It's not one, it's not one monolithic community of all people with disabilities. It's a lot of different communities that realize that together they could create social change. And I bet a lot of specific humor as well. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's jokes around, you know, every category. We even, we even talk about a, uh, hierarchy within the disability community right <laughs> so there's like the, the most disabled <laughs> or the most like powerful people in the disability community um and the people that are kind of like left out but i think that the story here is that uh the human experience is wide and diverse and too often the perspectives of people with disabilities are left out so mm. that's something that i've working with also through film and through communications. Mm. And looking at your own self-development, is there a imperfection that you are aware and you are working on? I think recognizing that the heart has its own language mm. is the one that's most recently been top of mind. I think that if you look at the word invalid, invalid, invalido, in Spanish uh, or Italian, it means a person of no value. Hmm. Invalido. Oh, horrible. Right? No value. Whew. Never and, thought about and it. And so that the way. question becomes for myself is how do I create value? Wow. And so I had developed, you know, when I was going through graduate school and getting my PhD in urban planning, I'm an urban planner by day job, but by profession, I wanted to elevate my the do the knowledge and the value that I could create, but potentially at the expense of other places of knowledge. And the heart has tremendous knowledge. The heart beats, the heart signals, the heart has a whole mesh of neurons around it. Um, and so does the stomach. So some neuroscientists have considered that humans don't only have one brain, they have three brains. 
So the three-brain theory is that the heart has its own set of neurons and networks, and so does the gut. So the question for me is, you know, what can I do to become more complete as a human being? And so, you know, writing poetry, understanding that uh, there are feelings uh, and emotions that perhaps I had hidden from that I want to invite in and welcome into my life. Hmm. That hit me hard. You mentioned the word invalid, invalid. It's also different languages use the same same weird word because that's given by the majority. That invalid. That that's really bad. Like you you again you open open my eye here and most likely many many <laughs> listeners are like wow it sounds so old and outdated but it creates its own logic so the, the soviet union developed a entire set of education policies that was called defectologists and the defectologists were the ones that basically determined how to educate children with defects, with disabilities. Hmm. So even the idea that the disability is a defect, it's not something normal. It's, it's not something that, that is part of this child experience. It's something that has to be erased. It becomes a science within itself, right? So this is why I talk about multi-generations of, 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 of advocacy. Because, you know, 50 years ago, there was a gentleman called Ed Roberts that applied three times to attend the University of California, Berkeley, because he had polio and he lived in an iron lung. And the university rejected his application three times hmm. because he had a disability. Hmm. Like I had a disability and I was rejected as well. But what he did is he applied a fourth time, but he didn't tell them that he had a disability. He had great grades, and so they accepted him. And later, um, they had to negotiate a way for his experience at that university. And by doing that, it opened up an entire new set of um, cultural reference points. Mm. And if, you, if your listeners uh, have Netflix... President Barack Obama was a producer on an incredible film about this story called Crip Camp. Uh, was dominated for an Oscar by the directors Nicole Newman and um, James Lebrecht, who are good friends of mine. So this is how this group of activists in the U.S. even interacted with Finnish activists like Kali Konkala. Mm-hmm. And uh, other activists in, in Sweden. And, and they had summer schools and exchanges. And so there's these seeds of new ideas of what's possible that matured over time. And there's a next generation of activists. So I'm a second generation. Now there's a new generation. So I think when you think about professional life and impact and success, it's not just about you know how many companies you build and how many... What is your exit strategies and how much money, you know, you have uh, created. 
But it's about how many lives you've touched. Hmm. And it's about asking questions that you might be uncomfortable with, but know that even those uncomfortable questions are part of you. So if I ask myself, uh, Risto, why did I work this hard? Why did I get this PhD? Why did I build these companies and this 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 body of work? Perhaps it was because I was trying subconsciously to fill a gap or tell another story that my life is worth living or that my mm. my uh, life does have value. But perhaps I went a little bit too far. Hmm. <laughs> and perhaps I need to readjust a little bit hmm. and, and just accept where I'm at to just be a human being instead of the human doing. Mm. And each one of us sometimes gets caught into the, the human doing. And we forgot about the human being. Hmm. It reminds me, I work with high-performing leaders and many of them actually, when they stop and think, one driver is actually to be seen. And it's it's really somewhere inside us. On on a healthy dose, it's actually it's a good good quality. But you know, do you, do you think about this like to be seen? Do you, do you do things to be seen? Well, I think there's two layers to that question for me. One, my community is so invisible that anybody from this community needs to, especially in a position of power or privilege or in a position of of of, of engagement, um, has almost a responsibility to be seen. So in order to normalize the fact or to raise the fact that it's so that we're so absent, right? Mm. So if you're a minority or if you're a part of an underrepresented community, there is an innate uh, knowledge that too often people, you feel like you don't belong. Mm. And for those of us that have asserted that we do belong, there is that sort of purposeful um, understanding that we do need to be seen mm. so that we open those doors. But the second part is the, the part of the ego, mm. right? And the ego oftentimes directs how we subconsciously try to mend old wounds. Mm. And I think if you are humble and understand that you don't always have to be seen mm. and that you could pass the baton or give the platform to somebody else. Especially since I now am aware that there's a new generation, right, of activists and advocates, but also business leaders uh, and executives with disabilities that are joining boardrooms and so on. It gives you a sense of hope and purpose. So... Being seen, if you are part of a dominant culture and class, gives space to others to be heard and seen. If you're not part of that dominant culture or class or, or, or community, then understand 
that you are just a part of that story and that you have to bring other people along as well. Hmm. When you mentioned about your accomplishment and the opportunity to just chill and, and enjoy, it reminds me a lesson I've learned recently and it's about control. We as human beings, we try to control a lot. But the opposite of control is trust. And when we talk about trust on this level, it's beyond trusting yourself. It's actually trusting and resting with the universe. Do you have any any thoughts around that, like control and trust? Yeah, I mean, the first level is what I just spoke about before is power powerlessness. Mm. So the first thing that you ask about being seen is having power or not having power, right? Uh, the second part is about this idea of uh, control or loss of control. And I think that for somebody like me that, you know, literally has to trust somebody with bathing me and with helping me use the bathroom and with helping me get dressed and have my, uh, some food. There is a lot of control you have to let go of mm. in order to just understand that you need to trust somebody wow. to, to move to the next step of life, to you know, meet this, this meeting today. Wow, and you need to trust your, even your... Devices. Devices, My yeah. breathing machine that wow. gives me air. It has to work, and I have to trust that it works. So you live in a very different level of trust. <laughs> or, th or and also, control and the lack of control. Yes, mm. as a high-performing executive uh, that also deals with significant physical challenges, I have, I have to plan my life at least as best as I can. Mm. But I also have to realize that the universe is working in my favor. So the things that I can't get to will work themselves out. Hmm. They will come. They will work themselves out, yeah. Wow. Do you think is it is attaining perfection even possible? I've talked a lot about... Uh, so for those of you that don't know, uh, most of my work is in advocacy and in policy and in uh, uh, consulting with companies around innovation and inclusion. But I started a film production company called Windmills and Giants to tell stories from underrepresented voices and points of views. And one of the things that's most powerful when you ask me the question, is perfection even possible? It really depends on what is the story you're trying to tell. So if you go back, if I were to put on my director's hat, and I've produced now three documentaries, I always think about very clearly what is the story in this documentary. And what I realized is the story can be anything that you want it to be. It has to have a transformation. It has to have some conflict. It has to it has to have some basic elements. But the story itself 
is up to you to decide. So perfection is the same. Perfection is just a story. You decide what perfection is. You decide how, what that, how you step into that perfect moment. How you step into wholeheartedly into the life that you have. Not the wife that could be, or not the life that was, but the life that is. Hmm. And that should be, for most people, perfection. Hmm. Wow. That's beautiful, beautiful. Well, you've done a lot, but there is there is things to do. And, and um, maybe you could elabor- elaborate a bit about your, your uh, future dreams and visions, where the journey will take take you things to do and things to be to be to be or not to be i think that uh être to be i think i want to be uh surrounded by people that inspire me and i want to be uh curious and i want to be uh always learning Hmm. to do to do is Uh, I'd like to invite all the listeners to check out my foundation because they can get involved with some of our social impact work. We want to launch a new NFT project and leverage blockchain to empower persons with disabilities and break stigmas. There is a film that I have developed uh, that I hope will premiere soon, perhaps at the Zurich Film Festival. Um, the film is called Unconfined, so I'm excited to get that uh, that to audiences and have people experience that story, which took place during the pandemic. It's a series of memories that you explore. Unconfinement in confinement. Um, also, I think that the big thing is the Global Compact and Campaign on Inclusive and Accessible Cities. Working with the mayors, uh, the city of Amsterdam, the city of Abu Dhabi. So I think things to do, there's limitless things to do, but I think just a few things to be. And you also mentioned earlier, before th- before this interview, um, you also want to kind of move forward and ev- evolve because you, you have a massive legacy when it comes to disabilities and, and working for for your community, but in a way, kind of step forward from from there. What what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I think once we find a deep sense of satisfaction, there's a curiosity or a, a hunger to explore new terrains. And I think that I've learned quite a bit about innovation and inclusive innovation and how Accessibility really amplifies uh, better performance for organizations. I think that the work through, you know, one of our consulting companies, World Enabled, is on this idea of innovation for radical inclusion. And inclusion isn't just about ramps and about elevators and about, you know, sub subtitling a film or about having sign language interpreters. I think inclusion is about understanding holistically the capabilities 
that you need to transform systems. And we've inherited systems that perpetuate exclusion, um, perpetuate climate change, perpetuate, you know, uh, poverty and disinvestments. But I want to change that script. I want to change the narrative. I want to use my resources and relationships and get the time that I have to support the leaders that see the future and need help to create it. Uh, and the future is accessible. The future is inclusive. The future is a place that we can create. Uh, it's not something that somebody else will create for us, but we need to work together. We need to have a little bit less competition and a little bit more cooperation. What I really liked about Microsoft, um, for example, is they are top-notch partners around accessibility in their products. But they said, we're not com competing on accessibility. We want everybody to... <laughs> we want all the other technology companies to be better than us on accessibility because it means that we are eliminating barriers for people all over the world. So I think this is the kind of approach that is needed. I think, you know, the city of New York, the city of Dubai, where there's a meeting between the two uh, cities, and they both joked they were to compete to be the world's most accessible city. But in that process, every, every, every city benefits. So I think when you ask how I see the future, I see the future uh, using diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility using the ESGs and some of these new frameworks and metrics to really measure performance more holistically and drive that transformation through inclusive innovation hmm. for everybody. Beautiful. I have nothing to add. <laughs> this is a lot of fun. Yes. I appreciate you reaching out. This was such a beautiful conversation. I learned a lot. And I appreciate your time, and I wish all your dreams come true. Well, you can definitely follow my work uh, on LinkedIn or on Twitter, Victor, at Victor Pineda, at World Enabled. Um, the Pineda Foundation website is just PinedaFoundation.org. Um, and yeah, and the that they just understand that this isn't something for some, like these, this work requires all of us like everybody's accountable to identifying and eliminating barriers because we all benefit when we can all have a life that we value let's do this let's do it thanks man thank you victor thank you for listening to the talks of imperfection the podcast is enabled by Edita Prima, the kindest Nordic tech company that orchestrates automated customer journeys to perfection by turning data friendly. That's all, folks. It was good to have you on board. Please subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Instagram, and hold tight until the next episode.